The Old Testament reading today is found on pages 118 and 119 of your Pew Bible. It is from Leviticus, the first two verses of chapter 19, and then jumping to verse 15, verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading this morning is from Matthew 22, verse 34 to 46. It's found on page 990 in your Bibles. Matthew 22, verse 34 to 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Lisa Meyer, and I am delighted to be with you here this morning to bring the word of God. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Calvin Church, just down the road, a little bit east of here. And if you saw in the bulletin, you will notice that while I serve as the minister of discipleship there, I am bivocational, which means that my other job is in nursing. And I want to say that I'm delighted that you're having a blood drive here today. My personal record as an ICU nurse was 70 units of blood over 12 hours, which is about one every 10 minutes. So thank you for helping to save lives with your blood drive today. When I'm not working at my nursing job or working at my pastor job, I am also married. I have three kids in the Grand Rapids Christian Schools in seventh grade, fifth grade, and fourth grade. And they are not here today because it is the youth service at Calvin Church. But 
I'm sure they're supporting me in their hearts. <laughs> Let's hear God's word together. When I told my family I was preaching on Leviticus, they smiled politely. When I told them that it was going to be at another church, there was a clear mixture of relief and puzzlement. One of my kids said, so you don't want to get invited back? <laughs> and I can understand that. Much of Leviticus is difficult to preach on. My go-to database for preparing sermons has commentary on more than 2,000 texts in the Bible. Two are from Leviticus. In the three-year cycle of the lectionary, Leviticus shows up once. Today, it's the alternate text. Leviticus doesn't have the same narrative stories of the history books. It doesn't have the poetry of the Psalms. It doesn't have the prophetic warnings. It doesn't have the deep theology of the New Testament letters. Biblical scholars can't even always agree on what exactly Leviticus is. It's a book unlike any other in the Bible. It is priestly literature. In Leviticus, we learn theology through the descriptions of the rituals. The language is technical. It's specific. The rituals of sacrifice seem barbaric to us. And the laws, mostly irrelevant. As Christians, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So why do we need to bother with this? As we heard from the book of Matthew, Jesus teaches that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. But the second most important commandment, says Jesus, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from Leviticus 19. The book of Leviticus is addressed to the people of Israel who have been freed from slavery. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they were strangers in the land. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. They were powerless in their own lives. But now these people have come out of Egypt. And after wandering through the desert for 40 years, God has shown them the promised land, and it is good. It is flowing with milk and honey. During the years of wandering in the desert, the Israelites depended on God's daily provision of manna. Now in the promised land, they are entering a land of plenty. And with this new land comes a new way of living. And Leviticus is the book that teaches the Israelites how to live in this new land. For the first time, the Israelites are living in the presence of God. God is holy. God is pure. God cannot tolerate impurity. But people are not holy, and people are impure. There's a tension between the holy, the common, the sacred, the profane, the pure, the impure. In order to live in the presence of a holy God, the people of Israel must learn how to be pure and holy. In the book of Leviticus, God is completely other. The God of Leviticus has no body, no emotions. There's no loving relationship described in this book. God almost seems mechanical. God's holiness is shown partly in the way that God is so separate, other, and different. 
But unlike God, humans are constantly in flux. We are born, we grow, we age, we get sick, we die. The contrast between an unchanging God and the constant turmoil of being a human person in a body is staggering. And holiness looks different because humans are not like God. The book of Leviticus can be roughly divided into two parts, and the first half focuses on purity and the rituals to cleanse impurities. It's addressed to the priestly community. And the second half of the book, starting around chapter 16, transitions to ethical transgressions and the lay community. It's about holiness for regular people, for everyone. These are the laws focusing on relationships and behaviors at home and in the community. In modern America, we sometimes think of holiness in terms of personal piety. A holy person is someone who spends a lot of time praying or reading the Bible, attending church. A holy person avoids worldly temptations, dancing, playing cards, (laughs) watching movies. There's some truth in this idea of holiness, but in Leviticus, holiness is shown by how God's people interact with others. God sets down laws of conduct, and many of these laws are about relationships. Holiness involves other people, both our own communities and those who are not like us. The Israelites, and by extension, we as Christians today, are holy when we love our neighbors in the same ways which we love ourselves. And chapter 19, the text for this morning, is at the center of what it means to be holy. So the first two verses start with God instructing Moses, Say to the people, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now in English, this sounds kind of like a command. Be holy. Or maybe a prophecy. You will be holy. But the Hebrew is an imperfect verb, and that means that the action is ongoing and habitual. It's continuous. Be and continue to be more holy. This is more of a call to action, a call to an orientation, rather than a simple proclamation. Being holy, unfortunately, is not a once-and-done phenomenon. It's something that continues to happen. In order to stay in the holy presence of God, Israel must continue to be holy, to become more and more like God. This is what theologians call sanctification, looking and acting more and more like God. This part of the text we didn't read from the lectionary is an echo of the Ten Commandments, which we find elsewhere in the Bible. And then when we arrive at verse 15, it starts with, do not pervert justice. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this probably sounds familiar. Justice is a theme throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the next part maybe caught you off guard a bit. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Some of you may have seen ads for a miniseries on Netflix called The Fall of the House of Usher. In this show, the Usher family owns a huge pharmaceutical company. The family and the company have been embroiled in lawsuits because their flagship medication has been linked to innumerable cases of addiction, overdoses, and deaths. This is fiction, right? 
I'm not necessarily recommending this show. It's based on the horror stories of Edgar Allan Poe, and it is violent and graphic. But it does offer a good example of a grave miscarriage of justice. In one of the opening scenes of the show, an attorney for the government is in court, arguing that it is time to bring the family and the company to justice for all of the harm their product has caused. The attorney laments that despite hundreds of lawsuits over four decades, none of the ushers have ever been convicted of so much as a traffic ticket. And later we see the same attorney discussing this with Roderick Usher, the patriarch of the family. And Roderick smiles and says, well, Augie, you've heard of the golden rule, right? Whoever has the gold makes the rule. This is true for companies and individuals. American journalist Alex Perrine wrote that for NBC and for Wall Street, billion-dollar fines for compliance, for violations of the law, are just part of the price of doing business, along with litigation costs. If it saves money to get water for the city of Flint from the Flint River instead of the Detroit River, why not? After 79 lawsuits about that crisis, so far one person has been convicted and sentenced to a year of probation, 300 hours of community service, and a fine of $1,200. Our system is set up to favor the great, the wealthy, those with privilege. So it's maybe surprising to hear that we should also not be partial to the poor. But it's a reminder that justice should not favor either side. Since ancient times, the moral force of the justice system has been personified as Lady Justice, who is often shown wearing a blindfold. The idea is that justice should be blind. Justice does not make decisions based on wealth or privilege. This is exactly what we're reading in Leviticus. Justice should be the default. Justice should be fair. Justice should be impartial. But our judicial system since it is unfortunately run by humans, is deeply flawed. According to the NAACP, one out of every three black boys born in America today can expect to be sentenced to prison. For Latino boys, it's one out of six. For white, one out of 17. I shouldn't have to say this, but it's not because black people are more likely to be criminals. Only 5% of illicit drug users are black, but black people are 33% of those incarcerated for drug-related offenses. This is a perversion of justice, and we are called to do better. Our judicial system, our society, favors wealthy, cisgender, heteronormative white men. God in Leviticus calls us to be holy by judging our neighbors fairly without regard to any of that. Verse 16 cautions us against slander, but that word can also be translated as traitor. And at first that might seem a little strange. How are those two things linked? But in the ancient Near East, there is a suspicion, a suspicion toward any traveling merchant someone who wasn't part of the community. In those days, merchants traded in goods and in information. In a culture with very little written word and a mostly oral tradition, the power, the potential misuse of speech was significant. When my son was in preschool, 
there was another kid in his class named Naughty David. Well, his name was David, but my son always called him Naughty David. And most days after school, I would hear stories of Naughty David and the terrible things he had done that day. Sometimes Naughty David would steal everyone's snacks and throw them in the trash. Sometimes Naughty David would hit other kids. Sometimes Naughty David would keep talking during rest time. I had never met this kid, and I didn't like him. But one day, my son told me that after lunch, Naughty David had brought in some sticks from the playground, and he sat in the corner of the classroom, and he rubbed those sticks together until he started a fire. Now, this would have been serious, but my son grabbed his backpack and pulled out his fire extinguisher and saved the day. Let the record show, I have never packed a fire extinguisher for any of my children. But until that story, I thought my four-year-old was telling me the truth. I accepted his words without question. I'd like to think I'm reasonably intelligent, but I absolutely learned something that fall. Slander can be sneaky. You may have heard the suggestion that before you speak, you should ask yourself, is this true? Is this kind? Is this necessary? As much fun as it can be to have a juicy secret to share or an amazing story of saving your preschool class, not everything needs to be spoken out loud. Holy people are called to avoid spreading gossip, to avoid talking about other people behind their backs. And then we read... You shall not stand on the blood of your neighbor. That's what it says literally. The NIV translates it, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. And there's a few meanings here. The most literal is, you shall not murder. But there's also the sense of an obligation to help when someone else's life is in danger. But there's an even further reading in that says, do not endanger your neighbor's well-being, and that's where we run into some ethically thorny ground. One of my friends used to work for a company that made political robocalls, those disembodied voices that influence your vote during election seasons. And after a few years, he quit his job without anything else lined up because of how horrible he felt about doing this job. In another situation, my husband is an electrical engineer, One of his classes at Calvin grappled with ethical situations like, what if your company takes a contract to help design weapons? Can you, as a Christian, participate in that work? Is that endangering others? Does it make a difference if your work ends up being used by the Russian army or by the Ukrainians? I don't have the answers to those questions. I don't think there are clear answers. What I do know is that this whole section of Leviticus deals with community and relationships in a way far beyond what is typical in our society. There's a reason so much of our world implicitly recommends a policy of don't ask, don't tell. Getting involved in other people's lives is messy. Thinking beyond yourself is hard. It's thankless. And I think verse 17 makes it even harder. Do not hate your brother and sister in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Apparently, we're not only responsible for our behavior toward our neighbor, but also for the behavior of our neighbor. If we don't rebuke them, we share in their guilt. And there's a few things to note here. 
First of all, if you're starting with hate in your heart, you're doing it wrong. Rebuking carries the idea of instruction, not vengeance. The goal isn't gloating that I'm right, you're wrong. Rather, helping your neighbor understand something new. It's the same idea as discipline. It's teaching. When my kids were small, we worked on things like taking turns, sharing. And the goal was for them to learn and to, by extension, know what was important. Like Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. A second thing to note is that this is a direct conversation between two people. Arguing on the internet is never a good way to rebuke your neighbor. This is a personal conversation with someone you know. We see this idea throughout the Bible. Proverbs 25 says, Argue your case with your neighbor directly, or else someone who hears you will bring shame upon you. Matthew 18 says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And a third note is that this type of loving instruction is part of holiness and part of living in community. And for a lot of people, this is difficult. I am a middle child. I am an Enneagram 9. I break out into hives with conflict. But we are called to do this. Our world is so often split into us versus them, Republicans versus Democrats, affirming versus traditional, Israel versus Palestine. Any small disagreement can quickly become a chasm, splitting apart deep relationships. But we are called to speak the truth in love to our neighbors. We cannot be complicit in our silence. This part of sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming like God, This isn't easy. This isn't painless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, when Christ calls you, he bids you to come and die. The old way of living does not work when living as God's chosen people in the presence of God. And finally, we get to verse 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But this brings up a huge question. Who is your neighbor? Is your neighbor your family? Your friends? Sherman Street Church? Baxter neighborhood? Classes Grand Rapids East? How far away is your neighbor? This question was hard for the Israelites, and it's even harder for us. In today's world, it's easy to connect with people all over the globe. But in the wake of a global pandemic, political upheaval, a changing culture, it's harder than ever to actually interact with people who are not like us. There is a very real and very strong temptation to live our lives in an echo chamber, only spending time and energy on those who are already like us, who look like us or act like us or agree with us. But there's value in recognizing that our neighbors go beyond that. Our communities include all sorts of people. There are people in my life, coworkers, church members, even a few family members, that I disagree with about almost everything. It's hard to love them. It's much easier to assume that my viewpoint is correct and everyone else just needs to get in line. But this is backwards. 
Like Anne Lamott wrote, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all of the same people you do. <laughs> we are called to be more holy, more like God in our actions and our interactions. And we aren't able to do this by ourselves. It is only through the grace of God, the shed blood of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to put aside our old lives and take on our new selves, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This wasn't an option for the Israelites in Leviticus. Like all people, all humans, the Israelites weren't able to fully keep themselves holy and pure. But we, as New Testament Christians, have been given the gift of a new self in Christ. Because of the Christ in us, we can become more holy. And Leviticus gives us a model of what holiness looks like. Holiness is being Christ to each other. Holiness is living in community. Responsibility to others and religious piety were never intended to be separate. They're two halves of the same whole. We cannot be holy in a vacuum. We show ourselves as people of God by the way we interact with others. When we act justly, when we show loving kindness, when we deal honestly with others, the community can flourish. And as we continue to walk humbly with our God, we continue to become more holy, holy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the only person ever able to live up to your standard. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to turn our hearts, our minds, our lives toward you. And we pray that as we go from this place, we will be your light into the world, into our community, into our neighborhood, so that through us, others will see you and be blessed. We pray in your name. Amen.